We come now to the preaching of the Word of God. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 2 where we will read our passage. Hebrews 1 has been primarily about the nature of Christ as being higher than the angels. Hebrews 2 primarily about him being made for a little while lower than the angels and explaining the purpose of that. Maybe you've noticed that a number of our The hymns we did, the first two hymns we did, were uh, heavily themed around angels and the angels praising God. And this last song we sang was about our need for the help of God. And so this passage is about how the angels, while giving glory to God, do not receive God's help, yet humans do receive God's help. So if you are in Hebrews chapter 2, we will begin reading in verse 10 although the preaching will simply be on verse 16. For it was fitting that he, excuse me, please stand for the reading of God's word. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, great, precious blessing that we have, revelation from you, and you have not inspired uh, merely 65 books, but have given us 66, including this book of Hebrews. Each chapter, each verse is a precious revelation from you, and we thank you for this. We ask that you would uh, open our eyes and open our hearts, that we might receive your word, that we would not be blinded, that we would not be hardened, but that our hearts would be soft and malleable and pliable for your work, that we would be even prepared to do your works that you have prepared beforehand for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our preaching text for this morning is verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is a fairly profound truth that angels, which are far higher than humans, God does not help, but he has chosen to help we who are lowly. This is decide to help humans, mankind. Now, I think there are several audiences that need to hear the message of this verse. First would be those who have been Christians for a very long period of time. Now, if you've been a Christian for a very long period of time, salvation may just be assumed and after a while, you start losing the, the wonder of that salvation, and you don't appreciate it 
the way you ought. Uh, I recently finished reading the book, uh, The Secret Garden. I don't know if you've uh, read that book. It's, it's, children's, uh, it's children's fiction. It is, uh, has some pantheistic undertones, but it otherwise a fairly delightful book about two children who have grown up uh, getting everything without ever being rejected anything. And so thinking that everything is owed to them and they're very spoiled and it's so about them uh, learning that this is not the case and learning to appreciate the world around them. That is how many people are, including uh, many who have been Christians for a long time. If they are not thinking regularly about the word of God the way they ought to be, they may grow to be unappreciative, thinking that the blessings of God are, are simply owed to them. Well, certainly in Christ, they have been perfectly secured, and they are owed in the sense that God has committed them to his people who are found in Christ. But yet there is a great truth in the fact that uh, salvation is not, is not owed in any primary sense apart from the promise of God, apart from his covenant. If salvation has not been given to angels, then why would it be due to humans? Likewise, this is a message for those who are new to the faith, who still have that wonder of salvation, but do not know the depths of how wonderful it is. And uh, this truth is not a truth that often comes up as a, uh, as a first point in doctrine as you begin studying the Christian faith. It's usually something that you only notice later as it is only spoken of so directly here. You know, angels are fairly mysterious creatures. They're not often spoken of in Scripture. And lastly, uh, this is also a verse that applies to those who do not know the Lord, to those who have not trusted in Him, and so naturally have no appreciation for salvation. Uh, if you do not have that salvation, you do not appreciate it. In fact, you may look at what the Bible says about salvation, about God's election, about His choice of some, not others, about the way that His grace is distributed unevenly, that He has chosen to allow some to uh, languish, and He has lifted up others, both in physical senses of prosperity as well as spiritual senses. You may look at that and you may feel that uh, that is unjust and unkind. And so, uh, considering the truth that salvation is not owed, that salvation is a wonderful gift from God, is even important for the unbeliever to hear that they might believe and they might trust in a, in a gospel that is truly good and something that is not... Uh, that is not to be frowned on because it is uh, selectively distributed, but rather that it is to be truly appreciated because it is selectively distributed. And behold, you are part of that species that God has chosen. No, he has not chosen angels, but he has chosen men. And so I would like for every one of you to develop in your hearts an appreciation for the, the sweetness of salvation that has not been given to some of the most glorious beings that exist, but has been given to those of us who dwell on this earth in weakness and lowliness, that this salvation has been given to men. And so our agenda is very simple today. I want to look at who needs help and who receives help. Some angels need help. All people need help. No angel receives help. Some people receive help. 
It's that simple. And this tells us much of our Savior and much of the goodness of His grace toward us. So allow me to read this passage again and as is, I suppose, my pattern in preaching to reread the phrase that I'm on several times. It, uh, there is an opportunity for me here, since it is just one verse, to <laughs> trust that you have that in the back of your mind, but I will probably read it from time to time. Uh, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So it speaks first of angels, and so we ought to ask what angels are and what, whether or not they need help. So what is an angel? Well, an angel is a spiritual being. An angel does not have a body. Angels are glorious beings designed to glorify God. We see angels in Scripture uh, singing to the Lord, praising Him. But there are limits to the ways in which angels glorify God. Uh, mankind has been made in the image of God, and angels have not. And so various aspects and consequences of the image of God are not true of angels. For example, uh, God made man in his image. Both male and female, he created them. Uh, the Bible does not say the same of angels. Angels do not have sexes. They do not, uh, they do not prefigure the marriage between Christ and the church through marriage. Uh, Jesus says they are neither married nor given in marriage. Rather, that is something that is particular to humans. And so not one of the ways that angels uh, glorify God. In fact, as you read through Scripture, of course, when describing angels, it's going to use analogies. It's not going to speak of things um, uh, always in, in such a precise manner because angels are so unlike the creation that we're used to interacting with, but it almost always speaks of them as, as men. There's uh, one verse in Zechariah where you have uh, two winged women uh, flying, but apart from that, uh, angels are, are always pictured as either men or some other creatures. Not always, not always uh, men as in male men, <laughs> uh, sometimes as in, uh, sometimes they are lions, sometimes uh, beasts composed of various features. And another way that angels do not glorify God the way that mankind does uh, would be dominion. God has, God has given man dominion over the earth, and so mankind has an ownership over the earth in the way that uh, angels cannot lay claim to. So there are various ways that God has made angels to glorify him that are distinct from the ways that God has created man to glorify him. But this is an angel. An angel is a spiritual being who, uh, who glorifies God or is designed to glorify God. Now, there are some angels that need help, <laughs> and those angels are those who do not glorify God, those angels who have fallen. You know, we think uh, most, uh, most primarily of Satan, who has fallen, the great accuser, uh, and then his devils under him. These are all angelic beings. So uh, it would not be wrong to speak of these as angels. Uh, they have fallen, and they are, in a sense, in need of salvation. Now, there is no salvation held out to them, as we see in this verse, but the, uh, the situation that they have uh, found themselves in is one that would require rescuing should it ever improve. They are not able to rescue themselves from this situation. And Scripture speaks of this on a number of occasions. For example, in Jude 6, it says, "...in the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day." 
And in context, it's speaking of the fact that they did have a position with God. They did have some status whereby uh, these fallen angels were much more elevated. It says in just the verse before, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Do you see the analogy that's being made here? Uh, those that came through the Exodus were among God's people were cast out. And similarly, angels who had status with God were also cast out. So do not presume upon your position with the Lord just by where you, uh, where you sit or what people you find yourself among. It was not true for the Israelites. It was not true for the angels. Second Peter, uh, which has many of the same uh, phrases that Jude has, says much of the same. In 2 Peter 2, 4, it says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, uh, etc. It goes on with a, a much larger thought. But uh, God did not spare the angels when they sinned. It speaks of their sin elsewhere. John 8, 44 says that when Satan speaks, he lies because he speaks of himself. He does not speak of God's truth, but he speaks of himself from from his own self his words are his own rather than god's uh, job 4 18 says that god charges his angels with error and so these angels are in need of rescue they are not capable of rescuing themselves now there are some angels who do not need help uh, now of course all creatures are dependent on the lord there's no creature that is not dependent on the Lord, but in the sense of God having given people abilities whereby they may either maintain or improve their situation, uh, these angels have been equipped with everything that they need from the beginning, that they uh, not need any special form of salvation. And these are the angels that you see uh, glorifying God throughout Scripture uh, in a direct way and through singing rather than by their own destruction. First uh, Timothy uh, speaks of these angels. First uh, Timothy 5.21 says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He speaks of the elect angels. Now, angels, those angels who have not sinned, were chosen by God to not sin, that in his sovereignty, he has held them up and kept them away from sinning. And yet, even though it was by his help, it was through the means of their own natural abilities so that uh, what they have been given is not, is not a salvation like ours where they were rescued out of some despair that they had fallen into. It's also not an election like ours being in Christ. We are, the Bible speaks of us as being elected in Christ, him having uh, made the sacrifice from the foundation of the world, this plan being made uh, to save a particular people by his, by his redemption. Uh, that means of election, uh, that mode of election of being in Christ is also not something that is true of them. So when it speaks of them being elect, it is not speaking of them as having received some salvation as it speaks of us when it says that we are elect, being elect in Christ. So you have some angels who have needed help. We have some who, who do not need help. And if you are curious about this topic of angels, 
uh, you know, I was wondering, is there a particular work I could recommend to you? I ended up reading a lot of things, and one thing I noticed is that uh, modern authors are either way off the rails or they are, are not willing to say very much at all. In fact, I read one, uh, one modern author who, the whole book is about angels and demons specifically, uh, more specifically demons and angels, and answering the question of uh, how did the angels fall says, I don't know how one would even begin to answer that question. And then he, he moved on to uh, some, a few things that other people say, but then, you know, he just wasn't willing to say anything. And then I read uh, Turretin, who, if you don't know who Turretin is, uh, after Calvin in Geneva at that church, there was Beza, and after Beza, there was Turretin. So Turretin answered this question, and he begins by saying the Bible does not speak directly of this, and so there is very little we can say. However, I can say this, and he goes on for four pages, <laughs> to this, and four uh, large pages in small font to describe uh, what can be said. So one recommendation would be Turretin, but another recommendation in general would be to read old authors. Don't assume that the new authors are standing on the shoulders of giants and building off of what the old ones have said. Um, a lot of times you'll find a lot more uh, serious and detailed reflection in some of these older authors, especially as they address these questions. You know, God has revealed his truth to us that we might, that we might know it. You know, he's not revealed it to us that we might say, well, I don't know if we can sort that one out. Now, there are some things that are secret. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed are for us and for our children forever. Uh, God has revealed much, and those who say that, well, we can't peer too much into this when God has revealed are uh, falling into a different ditch. You know, they would say, well, let's not fall into the ditch of, of peering beyond where we're allowed to go. They're falling into another ditch of not peering where they are supposed to peer. Now, Jesus was willing to tell the Sadducees, have you not read when they denied the resurrection? Have you not read that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So those, those truths right there, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead and the living. They were obligated to have read that and to have concluded that the resurrection must be the case from these simple facts. Now, I look at that and I, I shudder to think what conclusions I should be arriving at that I am not by uh, a serious and dedicated uh, devotion to God arriving at. So uh, do not fall prey to the very common thing that says... Um, very common mode of thought that says uh, we shouldn't be peering into the mysteries of God when we certainly shouldn't be peering into the mysteries of God, but what people are doing is they're taking something that's not a mystery just a little harder and then calling it a mystery and then and leaving it alone. So uh, just a word about studying Scripture, that God has given us much and we should be uh, you know, s squeezing it for every last drop that, that is truly there. And so some of these... Uh, some of these angels need help, uh, others do not. I, I, would also, I would also add to all this that we should have a wonder about us, about the creation around us. Now, that's, that's true when we go out and we hike and we see rocks and trees, et cetera, and beautiful landscapes, but it's even true when, seeing, when uh, considering the creation that we can't see, like angels. There is a wild world out there, far beyond what we are aware of. You know, uh, if you were, uh, if you ever study and by study, I mean just, you know, look at a few articles on cryptozoology. It's interesting, just all the fascinating new animals that people discover all the time that no one ever knew existed. There is, God is infinite, and he has created, he has created a finite world, but it is so large and vast beyond what we 
uh, can comprehend even that. And not only has he made physical creatures that can be seen that are hidden from us for great periods of time, but uh, there are invisible creatures which he has also made, and we should wonder at those likewise. Um, this, it really, is, it really is incredible that God has made not just this physical world, but even a, a spiritual realm to be considered. Now, in all that, uh, let us also consider men. Uh, do men need help? Yes, absolutely, men need help. It says, uh, surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Uh, men are in desperate need of help. Men are in need of help because they have sinned against a holy God. They have transgressed his law. His law is perfect, and he is perfect. He will not be dishonored. Any, uh, anyone who violates that law must die. And that, is the, that is the wages of sin, is death. Scripture makes very plain. There are three ways that we have sinned before God. Uh, the first is by the covenant made with Adam. You know, that's what we, if you weren't here for the announcements at the very beginning, we talked about the covenant made with Adam and with his whole posterity, uh, all having been uh, by ordinary generation descended in him. So those who have natural birth, Jesus accepted through the virgin birth, but all of us are guilty of Adam's sin. Now you may feel, well, that doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. Uh, consider how the covenants in scripture work. In salvation, people are credited with the righteousness of Christ. If you are credited with the righteousness of Christ and that is considered just, it is certainly just for God to credit the sin of Adam to those in covenant with him. So we are guilty by that original sin by Adam. We are also guilty by our own corruption. So Adam having sin, becoming corrupt in nature so that he's inclined to sin, that passing down to all his descendants after him. And so we are born in sin, as it says in Psalm 51. We are, we are born in sin. We are, we are uh, conceived in sin and uh, fully inclined to it. There are some who equivocate on this matter. I've read from otherwise good authors. You know, if I, would, if I threw out a name out there, you would, you would be surprised that he says this. But uh, who said that uh, we are not judged. Uh, we are, uh, what does he say? We are saved by grace, but we are judged on the basis of our works. And so, in other words, he's willing to say that mankind is guilty on the basis of original corruption, but, but God would not hold that guilt against him in a court of law. So he would, he would save someone by grace who has not committed any actual sin, who only has this corruption that he's born into. Well, the Bible is clear that no corruption can be allowed into the presence of God. That is guilt the same way any other thing is guilt. Our confession even says that corruption is itself sin as well as all things that come from it. It is, it is against God's character to have such corruption that will be judged on that day of judgment. And then thirdly, and most obviously, the actual sins that we commit in this life. And people may think that uh, that sin is a fairly rare thing. It's something they do once every few days when they violate uh, very expressly one of the Ten Commandments and they steal something or they lie. But no, Jesus made it clear that uh, these sins, if they're, if they're of the heart, and so anger is murder in your heart. Uh, lust is adultery in your heart. And moreover, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If that's the case, then we are required to be perfect before our Maker, even in our thoughts. A lot of people, in considering this, 
think that, okay, well, the first time a child commits actual sin, you know, they've got original sin, original corruption, but the first time they commit actual sin is probably when they're seven years old, um, something like that. No, I mean, push it back to one years old, and you're not pushing it back far enough. Children have thoughts in the mind that do not honor God. We are commanded to, to honor God with our thought, mind, soul, strength. Any thought that does not do that perfectly is a sinful thought. And so we are guilty before God on more counts than most people are aware of. And we are with a death sentence over our heads apart from some means of salvation. It is absolutely necessary that we be rescued out of this. If we are able to uh, stand before God, if we are able to have any kind of standing even in this universe, So one conclusion from this is that you should, not, uh, you should not think that you can improve your own condition whereby you might be able to come to God on, your, on the basis of your own merit. There are a lot of people who want to get their lives together before they, before they uh, come spend time with God's people, for example. And they'll say, yes, I know that I need to repent and I'm working on that. And when I've gotten that, together, then I will come to Jesus, but I don't want to bring my mess to him until I've cleaned it up first. Like uh, there's a song that we sing, it says, the only fitness that he requires is to feel your need of him. Uh, You do not just give up in the task of helping yourself. If the angels were not capable of doing it, (laughs) if the fallen angels were not able to help themselves, how much do you think you can help yourself? Uh, Do not try to fix up your life before you come to Christ and beg for his mercy. Rather, come now. Uh, He is merciful. Uh, He will give you everything you need. He is the bread of life. Now, who who receives help? Who receives help? Says once again, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Angels are not helped. They are not helped in the sense of them being uh, rescued out of a state that they could not save themselves out of. Uh, There are all kinds of caveats to this. Once again, God, uh, every creature is dependent upon their maker. Uh, Angels are therefore dependent upon their maker. And there's all kinds of ways that the Bible describes uh, God helping angels. For example, in Daniel 10, it speaks, and I believe uh, this is Jesus who is speaking, speaks of him going to help uh, Michael uh, as he fights against the prince of Persia. And so you have God assisting and aiding angels, and that's not what we're talking about by help here. We're talking about uh, something much greater than that. And consider that language that was used in Jude and Second Peter. It's the language of sparing. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, he did not spare them. There was no... Uh, there was no sparing. There was no opportunity for a correction of the situation. This, this salvation is not something that has been, that has been given to angels. First uh, Peter 1 also speaks of the salvation that God has given. It's something into which angels long to look. They are not able. It is not given to them. It is not something that, they, that is for them to enjoy. And so it is, it is God's prerogative to give help. The angels are high and glorious beings. You would think, why would he help these lowly ones and not these high ones? 
It is God's prerogative to help whom he will. He does not help angels, but he extends his mercy to whom he extends mercy. And that makes it all the much more precious and to be appreciated. It's amazing how many people uh, do not realize this when the Bible says it so clearly that he does not help angels. If you're familiar with uh, William Paul Young, the guy who wrote The Shack, uh, he, if, if you're not aware, if you are aware of that book and not aware of his views, he's, I suppose he wouldn't call himself a universalist, but he believes that, on the, that eventually, even after the day of judgment, everyone will be eventually reconciled to God. And I once saw him give a presentation. I asked him whether or not he thought that also applied to angels, when the angels so clearly say, describe their torment and in uh, Revelation 20 as being forever and ever. And he said, yes, this could apply even to the angels. It says here so plainly <laughs> that he does not help angels. He does not rescue them out of that condition of torment. He has uh, consigned them to the gloomy chains of darkness, not just until that last day is a final ending point. Uh, that's, that's something interesting worth noting. Uh, in English, this is not true in a lot of other languages. Uh, the word we have, until, almost always specifies a termination at that point. Uh, in a lot of other languages, including the word that's usually used for until in Greek, uh, just means that it goes at least up to that point, if not, if not further. Now, obviously, they're being held in chains so that they might be judged, but uh, that is uh, yeah, something to consider, that because uh, that comes up several times in Scripture where it says until, and people will base whole theologies off of that, not realizing that our word for until uh, signifies something which a lot of other languages' words for until does not signify, uh, doesn't necessarily signify a ter termination. You may also be wondering, why are they said to be in chains if Satan also prowls around like a roaring lion? Well, Jesus also said that he saw him cast down from heaven, uh, Revelation 20, which I believe has been fulfilled, uh, speaks of him being cast into a pit. One good way of thinking of this is what Revelation 20 says, is that he no longer deceives the nation. The gospel goes out to many nations. He does roam around like a lion, but if you imagine a lion having a chain that is uh, tethered to, a, to a, a stake way deep inside a pit, that's where he is. Uh, he is tethered to that gloomy darkness. Um, he will not be able to escape it, even though he is able to prowl about like a roaring lion. He has, he has limits on what he may do, limits that he did not previously have prior to the preaching ministry of Christ. And it is very interesting, too, to consider that the angels have no hope. They were not spared. There is no hope for them to be spared. They have no hope. Uh, and so why is it that demons are so wicked? You know, I was, I was thinking about this, and I was so happy later when I was reading Turk, and he said the same thing. <laughs> why is it that demons are so desperately wicked? Why are they so evil? Is it not because they have no hope? They have no hope. They are chained to gloomy darkness. They are, they are just eager to, to do whatever damage they can in the time that they have. Why? Because there's, there's no hope of improvement. Why would, you ever, uh, why would you ever pursue anything that is good if there is no hope that it will profit you at all? Now, take that and think about ourselves. Who is it that acts most wicked among societies of men? It is those who feel the most hopeless. It is those who feel that 
good actions, righteous actions, uh, righteous thoughts, righteous pursuits, pursuing God will avail nothing, right? And who does, it, does the most good? Those who have their minds fixed on the hope of the gospel. This is why it is so important to uh, have yourself firmly rooted in the hope of the faith. That hope, which is not a fallible hope, but a certain hope that Christ will return, that he will save his people, that those who have placed their trust in him will be raised from the dead. It is important to be reminding yourself of these truths, uh, not just week by week as we gather here, but even day by day, as you're encouraging one another, as you're reading God's word, as you're going to him in prayer. It is so important to have your mind fixed on that hope, because apart from that hope, uh, you will have a gloom analogous to the gloom that the angels find themselves in, one that leads them to desperately wicked things. And you will find yourself uh, led into wicked thoughts, wicked actions, as you do not pursue uh, an exposure, a regular exposure to the hope of God found in Jesus Christ. In fact, not only are angels not helped, uh, they are God has assigned them to the task of helping his people. Uh, Hebrews 1.14, just a little bit before this, said, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? They are ministering spirits sent for the sake of, of uh, God's people. They are our servants for him, for him in his salvation of the people. So, for example, uh, the call to worship that we read in Psalm 104, it talks about making his, his ministers winds and his angels a flame of fire. What is that describing? It's describing that his, he rides upon the chariot of angels. And to do what? Why does God ride on this, on this chariot? Not that there is a, a literal chariot, but this is the way that God has pictured to us, to imagine his, his powerful works of sovereignty. It is in order to reveal his, his goodness and kindness to men, particularly in the judgment of the wicked and in the the salvation of his people through such judgment of the wicked. So angels, not only are they not helped, but they are assigned the task of helping people. This is how focused the Lord is on making the salvation that we've received so glorious. Not only has he made it an election that is particularly for some men, but he has made it uh, particularly for uh, this one species of creatures for humans rather than for angels, and even assigned angels the task of reinforcing that salvation with being the ministers who are helping those who will be saved. And First Peter, First Peter one ten says much of the same that they are, uh, yeah, that they they long to look into these things, that they are basically observing and watching and helping. Uh, in this process of salvation. So uh, let us consider also, oh, sorry, uh, there were a couple of other references I wanted to throw out there. Uh, in Matthew 18.10, it speaks of the little ones who, it speaks of their angels in heaven. You know, I don't believe in a particular guardian, guardian angel assigned to each person or anything like that, but the Bible does speak of angels helping even little children. And it speaks of in the... Um, in the narrative of, of Lazarus and the rich man, it speaks of angels carrying him away into the bosom of Abraham. So more pictures you have of angels, their task being to, to help humans in salvation. Okay, so humans, 
are humans helped? Uh, yes, humans are helped, as it says. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps humans. Romans 8:38 makes this very clear when it says, excuse me, 8, uh, 8.32. Uh, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Uh, God justifies. And what's very interesting about that passage in this context is it uses that word sparing. Uh, what did it say of the angels? He did not spare him spare them. And what does it say in this verse about salvation? It says he doesn't spare once again, but who is he not sparing? He's not sparing Jesus Christ. He does not spare the Son of God. So do you see how symmetric that is? The angels, they are not spared. They are destroyed. But Jesus Christ, he is not spared on our behalf so that we might be spared. We are spared because Christ has died in place of those who deserve what the angels will receive, that gloomy darkness that, they have been, that has been prepared for them. Or excuse me, the gloomy darkness they are in, the, the hell of fire that has been prepared for them. And so Christ has, has uh, gloriously uh, saved his people by himself not being spared. And so consider what this means in the, in the context of Hebrews 2. Uh, Hebrews 2 is said in this verse, it starts off with, for surely it is not angels. You know, there's a connection to the rest of this passage. Paul is, well, I, th I think this is written by Paul. Anyway, the author of Hebrews is saying that he's talking about the, the greatness of Christ, how he's higher than the angels. He speaks in Hebrews uh, 2 about how he's made for a little while lower than the angels, and he's giving an account for why that is. Why was Christ a little while lower than the angels? The answer is because he helps humans. In order, to be, in order to help humans, he must be like humans. He must be uh, humiliated in that way of having the same weaknesses that we have. And consider how necessary that is for, for him fulfilling God's law. First of all, to obey the law that he might, uh, his act of obedience obeying the law that he might perfectly uh, satisfy God's requirements, that he might merit for us a resurrection from the dead and a glorious existence. And on top of that, his passive obedience, his passive obedience is his death on the cross. That's why it's called the passion of Christ, right? Is because it is his passive obedience. Rather than actively obeying God's law, he passively did not resist that suffering on the cross. And so that suffering on the cross is necessary for him to be human, for him to be low after the angels and made weak and humble, that he might suffer on our behalf, uh, not being spared, that we might be forgiven. So both of those are necessary. Uh, both of those are absolutely necessary that we might be, uh, that we might be uh, saved, that he be made humble. Now, there are all kinds of uh, people who in a uh, stated attempt to glorify Christ, do not like thinking of him, uh, do, not, do not like uh, thinking of things in this way, or rather in a stated attempt to, to glorify God. You know, they think that Jesus is too humble to be
be God. There are all kinds of people. It uh, doesn't matter if they're... Uh, yeah, there's uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. There's just various kinds of Aryan religions that, that deny the deity of Christ. Right? And why are they doing that? Because they think, oh, no, that's, that's too low. That's too, that's too humble for God. No, this is God himself becoming man in order that we might be saved. It is something uh, incredibly precious. It is not something to be uh, derided as being too low. But it is something that the Bible gives an account for. Why was this necessary? It was necessary in order for man to be saved. It was necessary in order for humans to be spared, that the Son of God not be spared. And who is this particularly for? It is not for every man. It is not for every human. This passage says, He helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, who is the offspring of Abraham? The offspring of Abraham is, as Galatians 3, 7, those who are faith are the offspring of Abraham. It is those who are faith. Maybe uh, you're of the impression or you know people who are of the impression that everyone will be saved on the last day. God will be merciful to all. No, it is only those who are faith who are the offspring of Abraham. Abraham had faith in God, and it is through that that he is saved. And it is us following in those footsteps of faith trusting in him, trusting in this promise of salvation, that we will be saved. Uh, there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. There's no other way of salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and you must be found in him if you are to be saved. So do not, do not buy the lie that because God is merciful, therefore he will be merciful to those beyond those who are saved by the means which he has declared in Scripture. He is merciful through the means which he has declared in Scripture, which is by grace through faith. He saves he saves those who have that faith, who are the offspring of Abraham. And it's interesting, too, that he has chosen this particular way of speaking of those who have faith to his audience. Look at the uh, title of the book here. This is the book of Hebrews. He is writing to the Hebrews. He is writing to uh, those Jewish people who are considering returning to the old ways, uh, finding their hope and trust in the system of sacrifices, etc., and not placing their full abiding trust in Jesus Christ. And what's the folly of that, he's saying? He's saying, you must be truly a child of Abraham to have this help. That in this way, that it's evident in the rest of Scripture, that this is those who have faith, and you can see this theme throughout Hebrews. Otherwise, uh, you might be inclined to think that this is against his whole point. You know, if he, if he saves the children of Abraham... Then, uh, then, well, they're already golden. They don't even have to worry about the rest of what's said here if he's talking about a physical way. No, he's calling them to what they have, as it says in Romans 9. They have a right to this in the sense that they're the, they get the first bid on this. They get to uh, come in faith having, having been a part of a people who have received this message, this promise of the Messiah, and the Messiah is finally here. This is something that they have uh, as a birthright. And so to get rid of it, would be to miss out on, on what their whole faith is about, what all those ceremonies and everything we're pointing to. And if you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, you're just as foolish as what the Hebrews were thinking about doing, just as foolish as what that people at that time were considering as they were uh, entertaining what the relationship should be to the continuing ceremonies, etc. So we are to make our calling and election sure. Our hope 
is one founded in faith in Jesus Christ. It is only by faith. It is not by uh, looking to our own works or anything like that, yet uh, we are still to make our calling and election sure. It is necessary regularly to examine your life, not as a source of assurance, but as a, a reasonable uh, due diligence that God has assigned to us that we might know that the truth is truly in us, that we might not uh, assume that we are of the light and find out that all that is within it is darkness. So let us consider regularly where our eyes are fixed. Are we exposed to that hope that tends men toward righteousness, or are we uh, dwelling in a lack of that hope, which is a gloominess that keeps us bound until that day of judgment? There's something to ask yourself as you are as you are following what Scripture says to make your calling and election sure. Now the the answer is not. Now if you look to your life and you find that that there are things that are lacking, the answer to that to correct the situation is not. Well, I've got to do more stuff. That's that's not who God helps. He does not help the glorious. He does not help the angels who who are capable and mighty. He helps those who are weak and lowly. And so the answer is to look to Christ, the Savior, who who is perfectly is perfectly saving. Now, I would also add to all this, he says, surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. This is a sure and certain foundation that those who come to Jesus Christ in faith will be saved. Now, consider also just some of the implications I'd like to, I'd like to walk you through. Uh, some of the implications are, this is a, salvation is a wonderful thing. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the uh, the wonder of the incarnation, that God became man to dwell among us, to save us. But this is a truly wonderful thing. He did not become an angel. He became a man. And uh, Romans 5, 7 says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. You know, you, you could apply that to these classes of beings. You could say, well, one could imagine dying for an, a, a great and glorious being like an angel, but not a, not a human. Right? And so this is what makes Christ's sacrifice so amazing. He didn't die for the righteous. He didn't die for good men. He died for evil men. And he didn't die for great and glorious beings. He died for, for weak and lowly beings. It is, a, it is a wonderful, surprising thing that he has done. And moreover, it accounts for several other things well. It accounts for uh, why we see ourselves in this particular condition. What God is doing in giving us so great and glorious a salvation is he is allowing us to know himself more fully, his mercy and his goodness. And I know this is something that I end up uh, preaching on often, but I think it's really so critical to understand that the reason why he has permitted that this world uh, be lost in sin for a time is so that we would experience his, his goodness and his mercy and know him more fully, so that our experience is not a limited knowledge of him as it would be if the fall had never happened, but a, a, a wonderful and excellent one where we get to see God's very special mercy to a few rather than the many, and to this one particular elect species rather than another more glorious one. This is, uh, this is plan A. This is, not, this is not plan B where uh, Adam sinned and God's trying to fix things up. Well, that's not the way I imagine this going. No, this is, this is plan A. This is exactly God's intention in order that you might fully know his gloriousness, his mercy. 
And consider also why it is that he made us one, physical, right? Capable of the kinds of weaknesses that we have. Uh, subject to temptation in the particular way that we are subject to temptation. Uh, subject to uh, physical damage, the way that we are subject to physical damage. Would Christ even be able to save angels if he had wanted? You know, I, obviously he could have created them in the way that they were savable, but has he even created them in a savable way? He became man, took on flesh, that he might die. Angels don't experience death in the same way humans do. You know, we have been made with a particular weakness that we might be ones who could be saved in order that we would be raised up in glory, being able to appreciate him. Not only, not only has he chosen not to become an angel in order to save them, it seems to me that he has created them in such a way that they could not be saved should he have chosen to do that. He decided to create us in a particular way so that he would be able to save us. People made of flesh and weakness, able to die in order that he might die in our place. And that is, uh, that is just a, a wonderful, glorious truth. And consider how that fits with this idea of temporary humility. Now, Christ has temporarily been made lower than the angels, as it said earlier in Hebrews 2. I've been alluding to this several times. Maybe I should read it. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. And here the author of Hebrews was uh, citing this passage from Psalm 8 to speak of Jesus Christ being made a little while lower than the angels, the son of man. Yet, that passage in Psalm 8, it speaks of mankind in general. Man is made a little lower than the angels. And I would say likewise with Hebrews 2, a little while lower than the angels. Scripture speaks of us being raised up above the angels in some way. As it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You will judge even angels. And so he uses that as a motivation that we should be able to reconcile between ourselves, things between ourselves. We have been made in this particular mode of weakness, uh, lacking our own glory, uh, being capable of this uh, special kind of death that is not merely... Uh, the misery of being assigned to torment forever, that, like that second death or the, the death that angels might experience, but even one where uh, we are separated from our souls from our bodies, angels not having a body to be separated from the soul, that we might have death in this secondary sense, that Christ might experience that death, suffer the wrath of God, that torment, in our place in a way that, way that we are able to fully experience the salvation from him and to appreciate it completely. I would like to close with a, another passage that I've been alluding to uh, several times, which is 1 Peter 1.10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, search inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he made note to them the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, that was a fairly long passage. Let me break that down for you. Uh, the prophets who prophesied about this coming Messiah wanted to know what, what is the timing? When is he going to come? What's he going to do? How's he going to do it? And they, had, they didn't know, and they realized 
we're not writing these things. The Spirit is not inspiring these things for us. It is inspiring these things for a generation that is yet to come who will, who will be the benefiters of these things. The Old, Old Testament saints also saved by Christ, but only, only as a, uh, a, <clears throat> a credit prior to his actual payment on the cross. These things were written for us. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Okay, so these things are particularly for you. They're not for the Old Testament prophets. They're for us to enjoy. Now, certainly the Old Testament prophets now, uh, being with God, understanding what his purposes were, they can appreciate them. But for us, uh, living this uh, difficult road, uh, we get to benefit from these things in ways that they did not have the ability to. And then it adds, not only is it the prophets who did not get to appreciate these things, it is the angels as well. Things into which angels long to look, present tense. Not angels longed to look and then found out. Angels still long to look. They still desire to know the glories of salvation and the wonderful thing that it is to be saved by Jesus Christ. They still desire to, to know the, the grace of God and the way that we know. They wonder, what would it be like to be a weak man who needs salvation and to be saved? And so Christ is has dignified our species by making us those who are able to be weak and be saved that we might experience these wonderful glories, these things into which angels long to look. Angels are in heaven singing the glories of God, singing holy, holy, holy. They are experiencing the most wonderful things in the world. And there is a music that you hear that they cannot because they do not have ears to hear it because they have not been made in a way that they can appreciate the great, wonderful music of salvation is for you and for me if you are a child of Abraham having come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, it is so good to think about these mercies of Christ on us, on these weak and lowly people who you have made weak and lowly for your purposes. We come to you confessing our sin and our need for Jesus Christ, and we ask that, uh, that we would come to you in faith, that we would make our calling and election sure that you would be uh, most pleased to uh, see us grow in the holiness of Jesus Christ, to become more and more conformed to the image of your Son, that we might have that holiness without which no one will see you. We pray that we would one day see him, being with him, being as he is, and then we would dwell with him forever. In Jesus' name, amen.